Welcome to the Trustees Without Borders podcast. I'm your host, Max Stevenson. Trustees Without Borders, TWB, features organizers of thought and action for community change. Trustees Without Borders is a podcast of the Virginia Tech Institute for Policy and Governance. TWB features leading practitioners, thinkers, and designers working to reframe and strengthen community, doing so without borders or limits on their ideas and aspirations, without borders on what they think is possible, without borders on with whom they will work, nor on their dreams for a world that works for us all. Our guest today is Liz Lerman. Liz Lerman is a choreographer, performer, writer, educator, and speaker. From a piece about her days as a go-go dancer in 1974, to a recent investigation of origins that included putting dancers in the tunnels of the large Hadrian Collider at CERN in Switzerland, she has spent the past four decades making her artistic research personal, funny, intellectually vivid, and up to the minute. A key aspect of her artistry is opening her process to various publics, from shipbuilders to physicists, construction workers to ballerinas, resulting in both research and outcomes that are participatory, relevant, urgent, and usable by others. Liz has been the recipient of numerous honors, including a 2002 MacArthur Foundation Genius Grant Fellowship, a 2011 United States Artist Ford Fellowship in Dance, and the 2014 Dance USA Honor Award. Her work has been commissioned by Harvard Law School, the Lincoln Center, American Dance Festival, and the Kennedy Center, among many others. Welcome to Trustees Without Borders, Liz. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Joining me in the studio to interview Liz Lerman are Sarah Halverson Free. She is a student in the Master's in Urban and Regional Planning degree program at Virginia Tech. She received a bachelor's degree in philosophy from McAllister College and has worked in agricultural education, engagement, and community building in the Twin Cities in Minnesota. Sarah currently serves as a graduate assistant in partnerships and engagement at the Center for the Arts at Virginia Tech. Through her studies, she hopes to understand how public policy can more effectively facilitate community-driven, equitable economic development. Welcome, Sarah. Thank you, Max. And Sarah Lyon-Hill. Sarah Lyon-Hill is a third-year doctoral student examining community-based theater as an approach to building networks of community collaboration. She hopes to incorporate this knowledge in her work as a specialist in the Virginia Tech Office of Economic Development, where she engages in various community and economic development projects across the state. Welcome, Sarah. Thanks, Max. And I am Max Stevenson, a scholar of civil society and public governance at Virginia Tech. I am co-founder and director of the Virginia Tech Institute for Policy and Governance at Virginia Tech, the Center for the Study of Civil Society and its Institutions. IPG sponsors the Community Voices Speaker Series and this podcast, Trustees Without Borders. Now we would like to begin to chat if we can, and we'll have this as a freewheeling discussion um, with Liz. Liz, I think it might be well to start off just to ask you um, how you became interested in dance, and that has, of course, become now a long career for you. Thanks. Well, it's funny. Uh, you know, I actually haven't thought about the origin of that for, for a while, but um, I think I'm you know, fairly typical of most human beings. Moving is a part of life, and when you're young, I mean, I, my earliest memory of dancing is just splashing in the puddles in the backyard in Los Angeles because it's just this way that, you know, we express ourselves. I happened to have been born into a family, uh, especially my mom, who really appreciated art. And I told people I wanted to dance. I mean, I just said that's what I wanted. And uh, she she went to work to find me the most interesting teacher she could find. So I was lucky in in that it was recognized by somebody around me that that I was really really interested in this. When I when I reflect back about it, you know, I, I, I find it so interesting that I'm the dance that I'm the performer that I've become or the thinker that I've become because I mean initially, you know, what I had in my mind was you know ballet because that's the pictures you see. So I mean I f pursued that but um, left it uh, you know in my teenage years. But. 
So you were classically trained. I was classically that. trained and actually had, uh, you know, I performed for President Kennedy. So I was part wow. of, a, I know, was, there was a, a group of uh, high school students. I was the youngest from uh, uh, the National Music Camp that went to the White House that summer. And Mrs. Kennedy had this series of young concerts. And, you know, we performed on the mall. We had dinner at the White House. We had, you know, it was really spectacular. And uh, it was also my last ballet concert because I went home to Milwaukee and the Civil Rights Movement was kicking in. And Milwaukee is one of the most segregated cities in the country. And my father, being the social activist he was, uh, pulled us out of school into freedom schools. We were marching. We were doing a lot of work with Father Grappi. And I was, at that time, learning the Bluebird variation. And um, somehow, the two just didn't, I didn't understand what to do about the collision of those ideas. And actually, not too many people around me knew either. There's a long, long history of political dance, but that wasn't necessarily understood or seen in the history. So that was the beginning of my leaving classicism, not dance, but leaving the classical form. So it's kind of related to that. So you ended up, you founded the Dance Exchange uh, Dance Company. Um, and so like unlike many traditional dance companies, I mean, you had a lot of different dancers from a lot of different age groups, a lot of different backgrounds, I would say. Um, would you discuss the reason behind that decision and kind of the impact on the work that it produced? Well, I think actually it, it, you're right to relate it to that first story about, about uh, what happened during this, this trying to understand the civil rights movement through my body, which was mm -hmm. to just say that my my uh, I began seeking a way to combine artistic process which I loved, and the world, which I also wanted to be a part of. And at the time I was coming up, there was a certain isolationism. You know, you spent a million hours in the studio, you worked to refine things, and then you created things that you put on a stage that people came to see you. Somehow I felt mm, we were missing something in that construct. I didn't exactly understand all of what we were missing. I just felt bereft when I was in that world, like I was missing something from the outside. So it actually took the death of my mother uh, from cancer in the mid-70s, and I was, I was becoming a choreographer at that time, and um, I had the sense that the only way I could understand the world was by making something, so I wanted to make a dance about what happened to her and her swift, the swiftness of her death. And I decided to put old people in it. So this is really the thing that set up the dance exchange, because First, I had to find old people, and I know now, of course, we're everywhere, but <laughs> but at the time, we were aging in is in isolation. Mm -hmm. You didn't see old people out, nor I like to say it was pre-jogging. It's not mm -hmm. like you saw people out on the street exercising either. We're just so used to a different relationship to our bodies now than we had then. Mm -hmm. So I went and found a bunch of. I went to an old home. I began to teach dance there. I I sort of thought of it as community organizing. My father had been a community organizer, and I had my sense of it was okay. You go, you meet people on their own turf, you acknowledge what they already know, you support their own systems, and meanwhile you begin to give new information, and in time you fight figure out what you can do together. Mm -hmm. And that was kind of the process for the work I did with the, with the old people. And once they performed this piece with me about my mother's death, it was really interesting because they led me all the way. I thought we were done, project's finished, over, I'll go back, I'll go back into my life as a dancer. And they came to me and they said, well, now what's next? Like, <laughs> we're not stopping. And so <laughs> 10 years I, sent, I spent at that senior center. But within that, that group of older people began to be part of this thing I was doing with younger people at the same time, and that produced this idea of a couple, well, wait a minute, let's look at how many things we can do. When you have a mixture of people on stage, you mm -hmm. can just do so much more. In addition to that, once people heard about the old people, then I started getting calls from, well, Children's Hospital. They came over and said, hey, oh, wow. look at this. Do you want to come and see? Maybe we could use you at the hospital. And so I found myself artisan residence at Children's Hospital in the morning, and then I would go in the afternoon and rehearse the company, and we'd go perform. So there was like an organic development to my own uh, musings and capacity as, a, as an artist. I'd love to hear more about your decision to work with old people mm. in particular, because I know I've heard you mention it a few times, but and it has to do with your mother's death, but can, can you talk a little bit more about what that connection is? Well, yes, and one reason I like to talk about it, besides the fact that it brings me such pleasure to, <laughs> to relive all of that, is that when I think a lot about the desires now of uh, universities and actually most nonprofits uh, in the in the art world that are trying to figure out how to have a relationship with communities, if in fact they haven't, 
I like to suggest that one of the great training grounds is the older people because there's something, at least in my case, the history of my relationship. I like to say, yes, I taught them to dance, but they taught me how to do it. Mm-hmm. They, they completely absorbed all of my mistakes and all of my, uh, you know, not understanding. So I had this image from my mother's. When she was dying, I went home to be with her, which was really remarkable that I could go home for those last two months. And she, um, now that I've been around old people and dying people, I, I know this. I, I know how to recognize this, but this was the first time I'd seen it. But she did a lot of life reflection. She was talking a lot about people that I didn't know. And for some reason, I th- thought of them all as old. She was only 60, so it's like hard to picture. But in my mind, they were just the house was just full of these floating old people. And I wanted to try to create that on stage. That's what got me thinking. I, and I wanted them to welcome her. I had this idea, okay, they'll, 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 somehow the spirits will welcome my mother. Then that would be part of the dance. So it, it was the urgency of that. You know, I don't know that I would have had the courage or the strength to, to cross my profession that much. You have to understand there is zero about old people. Well, in Western dance. Now, that's not true if we look at dance globally. If we think about dance, you know, writ large, old people dancing is part of every celebration, every, you know, every ritual, every everything. It's just we had, like, forgotten all that. And that's partly the issue with classicism and the issue with mm-hmm. just Western, the way, we, the way we had come to think about art. So... Um, the other thing is that when I started dancing with old people, actually what my what the art what the art people were telling me is, oh, you could be I was becoming a social worker. And I said back to them, Oh, if I waited tables for a living, I could be an artist. But if I do something useful with my art form, I'll be a social worker. And that's why you find me writing all the time. I wanna be of use. I wanna be purposeful. Mm-hmm. I want people to see that these artistic practices can mean something in the world and it goes back to this enormous frustration that I had that somehow we would be more purely an artist. Not that waiting tables isn't a good thing. I mean, it's a good thing, but Mm -hmm. better to use our art in relationship to things that, because I was meanwhile, you know, as I was at the hospital or teaching older people, you could see the miracles. They were happening all the time. In fact, some of my early writing is talking about why we would call them a miracle and I could see them I, literally, people who couldn't, you know, couldn't do something like the woman would say to me, I can't, you know, zip my, my dress up. And then, you know, she'd come in two weeks later and say, oh, I can get dressed. Mm-hmm. Or <laughs> this one, one of my favorites is this really, uh, he was a big, big guy, former um, naval commander who was in the little group of dancers. And we, one of the things I had begun to explore with the older people was how to make dances about their lives. Because the question becomes, oh, what should we be dancing about? And um, so we began this process of storytelling, which you see as a, a link in all so much mm-hmm. community-based practice. Yeah. Well, one of the guys, he was in his 90s, and he had been a, a lumberjack in northern Michigan. So when we did this show in the schools, we would go, I'd get all the old people standing up on the front of the stage and... I mean, I was just learning to choreograph at the time, so he would go, he'd say I was a lumberjack or something, and he'd go, uh, you know, one, two, three, timber, and then all the old people would fall down, which the, the kids just, <laughs> they just loved. Well, this guy comes up to me, oh, I don't know, a few months into our work, and he said, I want you to know, Liz, I took a bath. And I said, well, that's good, John, I'm you know, good. But I, you know, I started to realize that when people want to tell you something, they bother to come up to you, pay attention. Mm -hmm. So he said, well, for the last, you know, I don't know how many years I've only been able to shower. But since I've been a tree falling, I can get in and out of the tub. That's pretty pretty powerful story. First of all, this is a guy who'd never go to therapy. So let's understand that we're not talking therapy, and he wouldn't go if we did. Why? What made it possible? I, I, I often reflect about this. Because he got to be in his friend's story, because he got to embody something so powerful for his friend. What was, you know, what happened? But he learned how to get up and down. And then, of course, that's just huge for, for an older person. So 
that's that, that sort of began to tell me that I was on to something, despite the fact that my profession mm-hmm. was telling me, no, you're not. How do you generally, when, you, when you're encountering people who really kind of put a frame around your work saying, mm. oh, it is therapy or this is yeah. a tool for mm-hmm. something and versus, you know, other artists that are saying, you know, this is very aesthetic art for art's sake, that sort of thing. How do you um, deal with that and how do you approach that? Well, actually, I had yet another discussion with Max about this just while I've been here because I have a formulation for sort of my initial response and mm-hmm. what, what, what uh, the way I've tried to live in response to that. I want to say that most of the time I find resistance interesting. Mm-hmm. That when you get people saying things to you that are you don't believe in, or you know, I don't mind sharpening my mind in relationship to that. After a while, it gets boring because it's the same mm-hmm. arguments, and I don't understand why we're still having them. And that gets us also to the policy question, like how do you actually really create change? Because I am still having this yeah. argument, and this is 40 years now, 40 years of saying, look, I have one foot in the art, in the professional art world, I have one foot in this other world, or many feet, <laughs> look, you know, look what's happened. But one way, I've, one way I've said this is that I've encouraged people to try to hold more than one idea in their head at the same time. That part of it, part of the struggle is it can only be pure, or it can only be community, and I'm, I say that's crazy. It's mm-hmm. multiple. And that's why I have this hierarchical thing that sometimes I do with my hands where I might demonstrate here's, you know, the, the work in the concert hall is at the top and the work in the community is at the bottom, although some people just swing that around and they put the work at the community at the top and they say the concert hall work is nothing and I'm saying no, no, put it, at least put it sideways and see why. Because it, I love the rigor of the concert world. I love, like, what you're going to get to see if you come to Healing Wars. I mean, I want to do things like that. But not instead of, or in spite of, or in opposition to all this other stuff. And they link. They come together in so many ways. That's mm-hmm. really, really exciting. So I don't know. Uh, of late, I mean, you're catching me in a period where I'm, I'm sort of less interested in the art for art's sake uh, um, argument and in, coming in, in trying to communicate with them about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, Liz, that makes me <clears throat> think about tonight's, tomorrow's performance. Yeah. How is Healing Wars based in community work? Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. Well, if we expand also what we mean by that. Mm. So if I were to say and some, of my, some of my earliest work around community was the idea that you could actually build community and that art and art making was a way to bring people together outside of their normal pathways and have an experience together. So in my early work around community, it was all about community building. And you could see that in the way I would work in the senior center, like what kinds of things changed at the Roosevelt Hotel for senior citizens because I was in there and because we were making art together. And you could observe over a period of time. Is it true that the, the, maybe it's true that the activists are the one that came to dance, or is it possible that dance built them into activists, what, what that relationship was, but they became leaders within the, within the center? I think it's in part because we rehearsed together, we got to know each other, we had ways of supporting each other. So there was that's that form of community. And then there was the form of community building where I would do these big, huge, uh, I would, I, for example, was teaching at maybe six or eight different locations in Washington, and then I would make a big piece and all those people would come together. So the private school kids would come together with the Department of Justice, people who would come together with the old people, and then this professional core of dancers who held it all together by the skills they were building. That was a form of community. That was pretty interesting. We kind of pursued this. Me, as I would say, as an outsider visiting other communities, come in do one of these kinds of projects, often based on subject matter that grew out of the community we were visiting. We were a catalyst. I think we made it possible for people to see each other in their worlds differently, possibly because we were outsiders, not caught in all the inside stuff. I'm not sure that's worth worth looking at. Then, you, then <clears throat> I think really that the, 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 the project that really turned everything or maybe made me rethink it all is the Hallelujah Project. Um, 15 communities over three years asking people what they are in praise of 
making participatory dances in which anybody could be in that responded to that. Dance company touring with that, we had some repertory that we would do as part of it, some pieces we had built around these ideas about what Hallelujah meant, which I thought was the celebration after hard times, and that very often when people wanted to reflect on what they wanted to be in praise of, they would tell the hard story, and then the thing that came, the kind of, as I say, the celebration, which allowed us to go deep into some issues, but also keep coming back to this frame of almost of a festival. That was an enormous undertaking, and I have a million stories from different communities about the kinds of people that participated and what we all learned and what we danced about. And we did bring everybody together at the end. They, everyone who was in it anywhere in the country came to, who wanted to, could come, spend two weeks together, and we did a Hallelujah kind of event in D.C. For, for everybody. Out of that... I, be, I obviously came to see that there were so many ways that people participated besides being on stage. The boat builders in Eastport who ba made the lanterns that the community that were taken out to sea the night before the dawn of 2000, or um, the people who cooked the meals for the performers in Tucson, where you know we we worked with all the religious groups there, which cut across all the ethnicities in that town. Once we decided to work through the um, the church and the synagogue and the day at the day schools and stuff like that. So meanwhile, my own proclivity for what I call, began to call creative research. So I, you see a lot of different language over time, community meaning a bunch of different things. Right now, the, this idea of creative research for me is a big umbrella for the description of all the ways that artists work to build the material that they're going to share. And that that's where, if you investigate Healing Wars, you see all of this uh, stuff happening that engages people, even though they're not on stage. Although some of their stories are on stage and some of their ideas are on stage. So if I think about Blacksburg, because we got to do creative research here, we came here. Mm -hmm. And I came actually by myself and met a lot of people, and then I brought some performers. And based on what I, who I had met and who I had talked to, we got to work at the at the uh, the Psychology and Neuroscience Institute in Roanoke. We met two evenings. We met with vets who were on campus here at Virginia Tech, whose stories were incredible. Uh, I would say two of their stories are in the piece. Um, we. We, so how, how is that community in relationship to that? I feel it, and our work has changed because of it. I honestly don't know if they feel it. Mm -hmm. And that is a question about the nature of this work. Yeah. I think in the hallelujahs we were sure because we got everybody, everybody was there. But in this case, when it's a little bit more, like I think a lot of the vets have gone on, moved right. on. I know that one of the dancers in, the comp in this group stayed in correspondence with one of the vets for quite a while. And I, I know he's been invited and, you know, there's stuff going back and forth. But. Now, you said something that brings two strands of this conversation together at Community Voices the other night. You indicated that imagination is experience. Uh, and we've been talking about this sort of disjunction in the field of dance where classically the argument was that it couldn't have purpose. The aesthetic was the aesthetic. And yet you're arguing for a different kind of aesthetic imagination, it seems to me. Um, and the other night you indicated that you do that on the basis of this very interesting idea that experience is imagination. And I found myself reflecting on that and wondering if you could expand a little bit more on what you really mean by that. Because in some sense, you know, the critic might say, then how do we get these leaps of new thinking if we already are basing imagination and the concept of experience? Well, actually, that was my question to, to Mike, the neuroscientist, because he's the one who said experience is and imagination are the same thing. So I've actually been testing this. And the way I've been testing it is that when I give keynotes, after I talk for a little bit, I'll stop and I'll say, okay, what's the picture in your mind right now? What are you picturing? And I, sometimes people, you see the, the everybody just shakes themselves out, like, what is she talking about? <laughs> then I say, okay, I'm going to say the sentence again, but I want you to pay attention to what picture is emerging in your mind. And then I'll collect them. And the thing that happens is that it's 
most often that people will picture in their mind their version of my story. So if, for example, I say my family used to, on Friday nights, we would have to have Friday night dinner together before we were allowed to go out and socialize. If I say that, I'm pretty sure if I asked you what picture, well, what picture's in your mind when I say that, you guys? What, what, what comes to mind? Well, I know this because I was at the talk the yeah. other night, but it's true. When I think about it, I, I think about my parents' mm-hmm. yeah. dining room table and, and how we would have dinner together every night. And Right. You see your yeah, picture. Right. You yeah. can visit me and mine. You're right. be- definitely making a connection, but you're personalizing it. So on one level, the part of this that I like the most is that when I insist that you can make dances about subject matter and that it doesn't have to be personal, I can make a dance about the Civil War, or I can make a dance about the defense budget, or I can, I promise you that the imagination of the people in the theater will personalize as I did these things. Because that always irritated mm-hmm. me. It's like, okay, it's all right to make a dance about love. Like, how many of those we need to see? But I actually feel about the planet, or I mean, I feel about these subjects that I take on. I feel personally about them, and I do think about them that way, but I also know the public does too. But it made me wonder when Mike said that, well, then isn't that even more of a call on the part of artists to create enough of, a, enough of clues so that you can take leaps of imagination or go places maybe that you haven't seen? Because, yes, that would be sad if, it's, uh, if, it, if you're only reliving your own experience. I'm, you know, I think when people see Healing Wars, um, what the part, I'm guessing, but I think the part of people's personal experience that they draw on when they meet us in the theater is possibly their relationship to family members who've been at war, possibly um, their concern when they open the newspaper and read another story about PTSD, and then they close the paper before they even finish reading it because they don't want to think about it. They will think about it, and it will be populated perhaps by a car accident they had a long time ago, or that will be populated by the young man they see on stage who only has one leg. And that becomes their experience. He becomes their experience. And that's how they'll move forward. I like to think that, but I don't know if that's true. Um, Kind of related to that, I mean, in, in the past, you've basically described art making as transitioning between living in abs- abstractions and sometimes concrete imagery and sometimes in many the many places in between. Um, so would you say that part of that kind of leap in imagination is how you get to your audience and how, because commun- a lot of community theater or community dance is really based on trying to reach your audience and having them participate or having them experience in it as well. Um, and kind of incorporating them into this experience. Well, I, you know, I think if, if, if we accept the idea of multiplicity, which I hope we do, mm-hmm. I, think, I think we just get into trouble with singularity. Mm-hmm. I've even been talking to my rabbi about this. Maybe just the idea of one God is the problem. It's the whole problem. <laughs> I said, come on. Because it's just, it's, you know, in a way, that's what we keep fighting over. It's my God, your God, you know. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. It, it, in this case... I, I believe in abstraction as an activity that every human being involves themselves in all the time. Hmm. Language itself is an abstraction. It's a, we're making symbols. We're constantly translating. That's one of the things that we do, and we bring meaning to these things. So I, as an artist, however, I feel that... Um, this is a little bit esoteric, and I hope it's still interesting, but... When I purposely abstract something, it's a lot of work. You, it, it isn't, I don't go for the abstraction. I go for the thing and try to understand how am I going to best express this thing. And what feels most true to life to me is like you and I are looking at each other right now. Mm-hmm. So I see you, you see me. But meanwhile, there's a gray wall behind you. There's a room full of squares of light. Uh, these repetition of these microphones is all around us. There's a lot of elements of abstraction mm-hmm. as you and I are having this conversation. That's the world I'm interested in. It's the back and forthness of those things. What I fear in my art form is that people have been taught to jump to the abstraction immediately mm-hmm. without any of the steps on the way to why you would abstract or with any of the concrete material that brings abstraction to life. But 
as I say, it's a little that that's a little bit maybe esoteric. What I did feel though with the old people is that once I put old people on stage, I was helping bring. It's like bringing more clues to how to see the thing that's in front of you. And finally, let me just say that if my life were only stage work, I would not be happy. So having people come to the theater to see Healing Wars, I want them there. They bring with that, you know, we need the audience, but, and we also put three and a half years into building it. So mm -hmm. I believe that we've sorted and filtered through a lot of ideas about war, about our current wars, that, it, that if an audience comes, something will happen to them that's of value. I can also teach a workshop based on the thing, and they can also experience it in another way. In another way, and those things are of equal value to me. They're not one is better than another, mm -hmm. but they relate to each other. So, I, I'm not sure if behind your question was what's the point of coming to the theater, but I believe <laughs> I believe that there I believe that there is a reason to be in there all together, mm -hmm. thinking about these things. Liz, why do you think people? Are going to come see Healing Wars? I don't know. <laughs> because I know that actually, um, I think a lot of people, you know, they get worried about about uh, having to spend an hour and a, oh my God, dance an hour and a half, mm. and then they go, oh, it's about war. Mm, I don't know, and then <laughs> they go, oh, you know, there are a lot, you know, I I I I'm not sure, yeah. but I also feel that um, those of us who are not in service at the moment. But living in a country that's at war, we have we are spending so much of our energy not thinking about it that actually it's a relief to go somewhere that's going to be safe, somewhat comfortable, settle in, and think about it for 90 minutes. And I actually think that that, that is what attracts people and what happens to people. Like when we first started performing the piece and also showing it in Works in Progress as we were building it, I couldn't understand why people seemed to be almost, I want to say, like slightly ecstatic when it was over because the subject matter is tough. And I finally decided it's because it's just such a relief to be able to say I am actually a part of this. Uh, this is my country. This is what we are doing. This is what is happening in this world right now. Uh, and and I actually think even in light of the current events and what just happened in Tunisia, it's it's helpful for us to spend time wondering about the costs of and how we're confronting these very scary things, which this piece does partly because it wanders between the civil war and the war in Iraq. You get to kind of um, almost be nostalgic in the midst of something that's very current. It's odd. Very interesting. Yeah, it's odd. I'm still trying to figure it out, too. Um, well, in the process of making Healing Wars, um, the, the other night at Community Voices, uh, you talked a little bit about the process and um, going to see and, and talking to actual scientists and the effects on the brain and also talking to veterans. Could you talk about that and kind of what goes through your head um, when you're working with these different groups and how that, what, what that experience is? Well, that's what I mean about creative research, and it's actually one of the things that I, I wish that we as artists spent more time articulating the processes, mm -hmm. uh, as your question suggests, because I, I, I really believe that the processes themselves are available for anyone, artist or not, mm -hmm. and that it's a really interesting way to research. In fact, if you talk to people on campuses, you see that interviewing is a massive form of research at the moment across all disciplines. Um, in this particular case, uh, there were so many strands, I just wasn't sure where we were going to land. And, uh, and so part of the research is, is uh, translating what you're hearing into a, a theatrical mode to see if you can make it stage-worthy. That's a really good way to edit. Like there's so many good ideas, but only some of them can get translated. So that was one thing. And the second thing was that I, I was very driven by the characters I'd selected to pursue in the piece and what their relationship was. So for example, I fell in love with Clara Barton and um, there's just not enough I can say about what an incredible woman she was and how much more I wish we knew about her and why she isn't on Mount Rushmore, I don't know. But I mean, just, just an, inc an incredible, incredible 
human being. And uh, I also was interested in trying to understand who her counterpart would be in today's world. Not so much a major nurse like her or, you know, she actually, she was actually a bureaucrat. And that's, um, and because she organized, you cannot believe what she organized against all odds in order to do the work that she did on the battlefield and then after the battlefield. So we knew we were going to do her, and we knew we had a contemporary figure, but without a name. So when we went to the Neuroscience Psychology Institute, we talked to all the counselors. The woman playing this character got to spend all this time with these counselors. And as I asked her again just the other day, I said, well, now, what was that like? What did you find out? And she said that it completely, it wasn't their work life as much as their off work life that interested her, trying to understand what it was like to absorb all of this, and that that's what helped her figure out, even though she's actually saying a bunch of, every question that comes out of her mouth on stage is from the handbook that they use there. That we, I mean, with, very, with the exception of a character who's a spirit, everything that's said in this piece is verbatim from history or from, uh, we didn't write the words. Mm -hmm. It came from other people. I mean, from the research. So that, that's an example. The other is, I just want to say, talking to the vets, that um, <clears throat> we met a young, we, 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 so we sat in a circle for two nights, and this one young man came up to me after we were done and said this to me. He said, you know, I'm... Um, my my father served and my uncle served and all my neighbors served and my grandfather served. And I was, I've heard this. So I figure, I know what he's going to say next. You know, he completely surprised me. He said, so um, one day I woke up in Afghanistan up in the mountains and I'm wondering, how did I get here? Like I never asked, how did I get here? Now this is the same young man who was adamant about not enough people serving. I mean, but, to, but, but allowed himself this moment of, wait a minute, could I have stopped this? Could, what, did I have a choice? You know, did I have a choice? But it was just, um, just incredible. And of course, it happened. It's like I said earlier, I, you learn how to pay attention to what's happening. And it's not always the thing that's in front of you. <laughs> Sometimes it's the stuff that's going on on the outside. And I would say that was true for almost everybody when we came here and talked to the vets and continued to be true. We would, we would sit down in circles and do these formal things. And then afterwards, there'd be this outpouring of the stories that we wanted. We also heard a really amazing story about how they train medical people, mm -hmm. which involves a pig. And um, we, we were pretty shocked. We, we um, didn't videotape or audiotape any of this so the way I was retelling it I don't know so I went online and sure enough I found two more verbatim descriptions which is what we ended up using but it was instigated by hearing it from an individual just telling us what his training was it's a it turned out to be a really profound moment for for all of us so I, I guess the other thing I wanted to say about all of this is that I was not interested in making an anti-war piece I'm not even sure I am anti-war but I, I this is a question about the nature of this kind of work is um, what point how much point of view do I want to have and how much mm -hmm. do I want to lay out ideas and let people find their way and I know I wanted to make a piece in which people who have served are serving are coming out of having served could feel welcome but I also didn't want to say bravo bravo you're all fantastic isn't it great you know mm -hmm. I wasn't that either it was like how to find a way to lay out some of the pieces of this so that civilian and service people could belong in the theater together. That was important. And so being able to listen without judgment is really important. And, that, and therein lies some interesting questions about, uh, well, what are you actually trying to say? <laughs> and at what point do you actually say, this is what I feel about this? It's sort of the nature of the enterprise at its most basic level, I think. Yeah. And that seems to me there's a debate in the field, your field, about just that. Some people want to proselytize for a specific point of view, and other people are saying, I'm going to harness you know, what I like to call the aesthetic imagination to help you open a space to exercise your own point of view 
or to put in in more academic you know jargon agency mm-hmm. your sense of being able to do it yourself and I think it's a critical question in your field mm-hmm. and one that you would wrestle with with any production it seems to me that you might put up and particularly probably when you're trying to enliven the folk with whom you're working to have some sense of their own possibility as you did with the seniors uh, and as you often do when you mm-hmm. go into community of whatever stripe. I'm sorry, Sarah. Yeah. No, I mean, um, similarly, it makes me think about people's reaction to this work and that probably a lot of people, or maybe it's just the way we're conditioned to think about things, will say, well, that's anti-war or that's pro-war. We'll really put it into a category. They will. And yeah. Singularity. This right, is exactly. singularity. And it just, uh, yeah. And it, we're trained that way. The, I also believe that's an outcome of the hierarchical thinking that we do. As I said, it's either this or they flip the hands. And I just, I think it's way more complicated than that. I will say that, <clears throat> like, for example, I just heard an interview with a man who's the editor at The Guardian and in uh, London who's leaving his post and it was about they're going to do a really intense series of stuff on the environment before he leaves because he realized if he had any regrets it's that he didn't do enough about Mm -hmm. the environment and so he was asked well are you going to you know usually newspapers do both sides and and he said well look we are going to make it clear that there's a lots to talk about but we are not going to talk about the, the science that suggests there's nothing happening we are not giving voice to that that is not true. So in that sense, he's taking a stance. And mm-hmm. in some ways, I would take a stance. That's not, you know. But then within this other way, this context of this, uh, let you know, let's look and see. And it's just such the opposite of what we normally get. I, I normally, um, I don't know, I get my news from different mm, sources, right. but I normally don't watch the news. And I happened to watch it last night, part of it, and I was just amazed at how divisive everyone's speech was and um, how much we're, again, putting people into categories, putting ideas into categories, pro, con, um, you know, for, against, whatever it is. And so I really wonder how um, pieces like Healing Wars and, and work like yours can change that. Well, one, one thing is, um, now I'm back to creative process. So for me, this idea of multiple names for the same thing, which I've been uh, talking about, and actually, Max, I hope you and I can get into this question even of policy, because there are multiple ways to think about what policy is and what it means. The corollary of that is that you take things and you file it in more than one place. The problem with this divisiveness is that you're either here or there when actually most stories belong in more than one. That's what Mm -hmm. I like about tagging, to be honest, Mm -hmm. is that it begins to suggest that things live in more than one place. And what I enjoy, and to me this is absolute creative process, is that not if I, you know, if I take the pig story, I can put it in a story about animals, and I can put it in a story about violence, and I can put it in in, in a file about caring, and I can even put it in a file about how we train medics. Now, if that story, which is a violent story, lives in at least four files, then you can look what other stories live in the file with it. So in the animal one, you know, Mary Had a Little Lamb is in there. And so, I mean, there are a lot of little Mm -hmm. sweet stories, but there's also this. And that is more true to me than if you said it's either this or that, right? Mm -hmm. And if you go to the violence one and you see the pig story in the violence one, and then you also see violence, uh, abuse issues, you start to, well, you know, actually... There is some kind of, you know, you start to see these unusual connections, but you'll only do that if you take the thing and put it in more than one place. That's what I'd like to train people how to do. Mm. And then I don't think they could stand there and do what they're doing. I, I don't understand. I just do not understand contemporary media right now and why it's working like that. Even just take, I love to take the subject of bullying, for example. How many stories have we heard about bullying from them? And what are they doing all the time? All they do is bully each other. That's mm-hmm. all they do. Mm-hmm. Just anyway, you can tell I'm going on a rant. I'll stop. <laughs> I just like. But you know, at a different level, and I agree with all you just said. Um, but at a different level, isn't it very human to want to make sense of the world, to simplify it in these ways, to be as concrete and um, specific as we can be about? I believe this, and I'm not that. And are we dealing with something very human apart from the media and apart from the way the media frames? these questions as well. I wonder that we're really wrestling with underneath this question. Well, I know that I, you know, I live a, I, I live a more uh, 
I live a I live in a more complex sort of way of holding ideas, and uh, not everybody likes that. In fact, um, I think it's scary for some people. What is interesting to me is, like when my mother was dying, I went back to ballet class. Why? Because in ballet class, you're right or wrong, mostly wrong, but like you know what you're working on. There's not like, you know. And I, I was so appreciative of an orthodox world to visit while the rest of my world was falling apart. So I appreciate mm. that. I appreciate that there is a time where you want the rules. But I'm suggesting that we might want to question those rules and protocols and constraints on a pretty daily basis, <laughs> as opposed to setting up an entire worldview that you then cannot stray from. So that's why... Ultimately, this would maybe the ultimate act of create creativity is liberating yourself from constraints in your thinking and then reimposing constraints on your thinking based on what's happening today, not on the stripes on my sleeve, not because of whatever, you know, whatever assumptions people are making. I realize that's a little bit chaotic for a lot of people. And one of the things that's hard for people is how to manage that. So even if you look at the dance exchange and its history with management, I mean, we consistently tried to apply rehearsal techniques to our management process as opposed to the other way around. And I, I, think, I think we were successful. And I think when you look at these sort of nimble, mobile kinds of uh, communities of work, workplaces where you see that, you see a lot of what I call good leading and good following. So, for example, everybody at Dance Exchange was trained to be a leader and trained to be a follower, including me. I love that. Like, I think we should have followership institutes, as I often joke. We have mm-hmm. too many leadership institutes. We need some good followership institutes. Um, but because, just because of this, um, because we need to be flexible. Yeah. But I agree with you, Max. And, you know, you know the, when, you're, when you're raising children, you know, my, my daughter, she, um, she liked to watch the same movie over and over. So I, I began to develop an entire different idea about what was good or not good. Was Could you watch a movie 20 times? So we were like in the 20th time watching Fiddler on the Roof. <laughs> and the kind time comes when the sheriff comes and he says to the family, you have to leave. And my daughter says to me, is he an evil man? Now, she was like, I don't know, five or six or something. Mm-hmm. So I said, well, you know. Let's think about this for a minute. <laughs> Let's think. You know, he has a family, and she interrupted me, and she said, Mom, sometimes people are just bad. <laughs> and that, I think that's your answer, Max. <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. So when you're going into these different communities, um, and obviously you're going to face people who, you know, you're trying to work with, but they have that, you know, mm-hmm. they have that this is a singular idea of what's going on in the world or singular idea of what your approach to art making is. How do you work, how do you deal with that? And are there, yeah, um, do you have, do you do specific actions or are there um, important factors? Well, of course, I, as I said, I really like resistance, especially when the resistance is really authentic and coming out of a place where people have really been struggling with something. Mm-hmm. So I have two quick stories, or not so quick, but we went to Japan. Japan got very, very interested in our work with older people because they have a real problem with uh, not enough people to caretake older people. I mean, I won't go into it, but they, they were fascinated by the idea that we were promoting the fact that old, regular old people could, could become performers, not masters, because they're totally willing to accept a, an older master. But they just couldn't. So they had us come over three or four times to do community-based residencies where we would work predominantly with older people from the community, young artists who wanted to learn and be part of this thing. So I was all excited about that. And I had come across this reference to something called Sensenbari, which were these um, charm belts that were built during World War II. Each belt had a thousand stitches, and each stitch was put in by a different woman in the community. And they were handed to the, to the soldiers who went off to fight World War II. I, t- I found one reference in one book about this. I was so moved by it from this community perspective, right? Building community, what would it take? How did they do that? Oh my God, this is amazing. We're gonna make a piece about Sensenbari. Great, so I go over, I'm all excited. I'm gonna do research on it. I have a group, intergenerational group in front of me. I say, you know, we're gonna work with Sensenbari and all hell broke loose. The younger artists started it, through translators, are you kidding? This is the stupidest idea. Why did they think they were a charm belt was going to save these people? You've got to be kidding. What? They were furious. The old people were embarrassed. Totally embarrassed. 
So I had some choices at that point, which was, okay, let's, you know, let's forget the Sensambari. We'll go do something else. But I was so interested. It was obviously I touched something. So I said, look, everybody, go home, talk to your families. Find out what, what was going on. See what you can find out. We'll, we'll decide if we're going to do something about this, but we may not. We may not. But let's just let's give it another day. So everybody went away. They came back next day. Turns out that these young women had talked to their families, and two of them had found out they weren't just any stitch, that the women pricked themselves with blood and put their blood in, that they put hair in, including pubic hair, that, they, that this thing was like a, in some cases, it was a form of protest. In other cases, it was like, I'm giving you everything I have. So the, the young women were startled about it. And um, the older people, just um, the embarrassment wasn't about the belts. It's just about living with the war and what happened. So we ended up, we, we did a piece in two parts. The first part was protect the original meaning of things. And the second part was protect us as we change the original meaning of things. <laughs> because we were caught in this moment. And then there was one section of the dance in which we did um, verbatim, something like this. The sentence I gave them, isn't it strange that... And then they could fill it in. And what we got a lot of was, isn't it strange that an American who won the war comes over, tells us we should think about this? Isn't it strange that I'm supposed to find out about this belt from an American? I don't, or, isn't it strange that? And that, of course, it gave all this room for people to communicate. And then that was performed uh, through a series of, like, really conflicted choreography, like just going at each other both the Japanese and Japanese uh, in all the different ways that there was. So that's an example of where the, the, the art itself allows us to, you know, breathe open the problem. And, uh, but always for me, uh, when it's like that, is to make sure people understand that they have time to say no. Let's investigate, but of course we don't have to do it. And that, uh, that's really important, I think. You know, your good friend and long-term colleague at Urban Bushwomen, um, said uh, there's a deep psychosis in the American attitude to history, and yet here's this American bringing history to Japan in some way and letting them think through the implications of their own history. Are you as unusual as your colleague is suggesting in your own understanding and treatment of history? What, yeah. what is, what's been your experience in this sort of artistry over the years in terms of our culture's attitude to history? Well, it's, history is one of my probably most favorite subjects. And uh, there's a long piece, really troubling, troubling work I made called Shakyanu, which comes from the Hebrew prayer that I retranslated to mean, you know, isn't it amazing giving our histories that, you know, we'd be mm -hmm. sitting at this table together? And what I was interested in doing was looking at situations in 20th century American life where our histories crossed. Because my experience was, you know, my father, my father, for example, he taught Hebrew school, but he was fired by the synagogue when he stood in front of the kids and said, you know, your parents are slum landlords. Go home and talk to them. And so uh, he was cheerful about the whole thing. My mother, that was just one more stab of anti, anti like, no, we're not going to be Jewish. She was just, you know. But, but um, th it often struck me that I would take, I could say take pride in a moment in which I might be meeting an African-American. And they find out I'm Jewish, and they might say, well, you're a slum landlord. So our histories crossed. And we were both bringing our histories into that moment. So I got interested in like working on that. So the first section of the piece was taken from the 1904 St. Louis World's Fair, which is when the new field of anthropology, so excited and so enlightened, decided to put um, indigenous tribes from around the world on display in order of their civilized selves. So you literally could go and see tribes uh, from the Philippines and from other places um, on display. Also, the, uh, the pygmy, Otabenga, was on display. And, um, you know, they thought it was great. So here we are again at this idea, could I make a piece in which you could say, you know, the anthropologist is like, wow. And yet, from our eyes at this point, what a horrible thing to do. There was a, um, I was able to find um, some microfilm of, uh, from that fair, and there was a, on the, on the midway, there was, um, I forget her name, there was a name, a Jewish name given to this, and she was called the Palestinian Jewess. And she did um, an act with putting a chair in her teeth and, you know, twirling. So we, we, we did that, 
and we made her have a huge thing. So the whole thing started to be about stereotypes. So we toured this for a while. We got into so much trouble, so much trouble, including at Jacob's Pillow, where I was never asked back after this. And the, what turned out at the board meeting was that the Jewish people in the board meeting were so angry for this for sticking there, you know, having a big nose. And it, it, it became clear that it was okay to exoticize other people, but not our history, not our. Why would you put our dirty laundry out? Why would you do that? So that, it's really interesting. So you can now we can come back to the question, whose responsibility is it to work with the audience so that the audience can, something can happen for them that isn't only just Oh my God, I can't believe that just happened. So you see soon after that more attempts on my part to engage the audience either before or after. Mm -hmm. So in Origins, for example, we had the tea. You know, you saw Act 1 was about how things begin, including CERN. Act 2 is tea. People sit at tables. There's a scientist and an artist at the table. The dancing continues. People get to sort of think things through. And we got a National Science Foundation grant for that to study what happened. And it's pretty profound what giving people the chance to spend some time together did for them. And in this piece, Healing Wars, we reverse that. That is to say something happens to you before the piece starts that gives you, I believe, a way into the material and into your history and into our history so that you can settle into the piece on, on the whole. So I am... I mean, the big is it my job as an artist to do that? I don't know, but somebody, I mean, we need to be doing it. So, uh, and I find it pretty interesting. But Shehekianu was the one piece that just really disturbed, just was so disturbing. The last, the last section of that dance was an idea that I had about what my question was, could we ever, did we have to give up history in order to be in the present? I mean, could we, do we only wear our scars? And it was a big question about victimhood. And what happens, and if we, if we build our identity on being a victim, then what happens when we're no longer a victim, which is a really good question for the Jewish community, I think, in America, anyway, yeah. in America. Um, uh, what happens, and, and uh, so we, we, we imagined a museum in which you gave up your skin, and the more, the more scarred your skin was, the sort of more beautiful it was, but you could put your skin up, and then you would be, you know, I don't have any, I mean, obviously there were no answers from it, but... I, I think it's a big, big question about how it's we live really with it. It's a really big question in many post-conflict situations um, in peace building. You know, do you continue to memorialize those people who were lost? We were in a book I did a couple of years ago with a colleague. We were in Srebrenica on mm. the day of commemoration. And it's, of course, stunning to see all those coffins. And, and the international community continues to support the identification of remains from the massacre. But it raises the question, and it continues to divide the community of who are we memorializing, and it continues to reaffirm the distinct identity that created the conflict in the first instance. Um, no, my people that died are better than your people that died, or your, your atrocity was really worse than my atrocity. It, it is a really compelling and difficult moral question, I think. Um, it's a good thing artists can raise it for us, but... It's a difficult question. It's really difficult, and honestly, in a way, without this is why I come back then to the the, the structure that I have of it's of hoping that people witness each other's work, come and see the work I've spent three years building, but also be in workshops where you can embody the question yourself, because I think it's in the embodiment practice. Like when we did the shipyard thing, the, the, the Portsmouth Naval Shipyard is a um, toxic dump. So the shipyards uh, was attempting to deal with its toxicity, but the environmental movement thought they were ridiculous. We could not get those two groups together. We tried. We couldn't. The environmental group would have nothing to do with it, actually. In a way, it goes back to the purity question. Mm -hmm. Who's going to be pure when? And that's why I'm such an, I'm such an advocate for breaking down purity, because I just don't see the value of it. But um, we did... Uh, we did have a day of reckon. We had five days festival, and each day had an, a, a sort of theme. And in there, one of the one of the days was uh, reconciliation, and it was around the question of the toxic dump. And it was each each day the performance off the yard and on the yard, and the one off the yard was in a church. And what we did was let people hear the voices of all the different sides. But for people who did the workshop and the actual physicality of changing your shape, like in order to understand you, I actually have to turn my body and face you. Even that starts to at least give you some embodiment practice in 
some flexibility, but in these cases of um, genocide, that, uh, yeah. Well, on that note, I have to end a fascinating <laughs> conversation. Liz, thank you so very much for sharing with our Trustees Without Borders listeners some of the rich experiences that have informed your artistic research, your stories about the many diverse publics you engage so thoughtfully. Make your work come alive. Well, thanks for having me, and thanks, everybody, for your questions on this early morning. Thank you. Thank you, too, to our interviewers, Sarah Halverson-Fried and Sarah Lyon-Hill, for your questions and help in generating an invigorating and informative discussion with Liz. And to you, our listeners, thank you for listening to Trustees Without Borders. You will find more information about TWB, about previous podcasts in the series, and about Liz Lerman in the show notes on the website of the Institute for Policy and Governance at www.ipg.vt.edu. This is a production of the Virginia Tech Institute for Policy and Governance. I'm Max Stevenson. Remember, we are all trustees without borders. We are the people to whom the well-being of community has been entrusted. Thank you for listening to Trustees Without Borders. Mm -hmm.